is we have a common understanding of wealth. And, and so the common understanding of wealth is external conditions, right? It's um, economics, it's, it's, it's levels of assets, levels of income. And uh, you know, that, that leads to levels of influence and levels of maybe control or power. Uh, one of my mentors actually, actually called it, he said, uh, true wealth, notice he puts a modifier on wealth. <laughs> true wealth is uh, all the things money can't buy and death can't take away, like health, a close family, deep friendships, um, accountability, generosity, optimism, these kinds of things. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Schauer. Welcome to episode two of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. In this episode, I interview my co-host, Jonathan Dio. Now, Jonathan has a fascinating background. He was first a graduate student in comparative religion who focused on Buddhism and Eastern thought. And then after that, got into the financial services industry to start his investment firm. Now, I got to know Jonathan actually some years ago by reading his book, Mindful Money. And what makes the book so interesting is exactly the fact that it's in between the world of financial services and spirituality on the other hand. And when I got the idea to start a podcast, I really thought there's no one else I'd rather do this with than Jonathan. So without further ado, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with my co-host, Jonathan Dio. Hello, and this is the second episode of the Mindful Wealth podcast. And this is the beginning episodes where we kind of get to know each other, talk a little bit about where we're coming from. And I have the pleasure today of interviewing Jonathan Dio, my co-host, uh, with returning the favor of giving him some of the tough questions he gave me last week. <laughs> so I'm excited to do this. And I thought we could just start off, Jonathan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do and what brought you to do what you do. So a little bit of today and then a little bit of history. Exactly. So uh, today, I think the most important things that we have to say is I'm a father and I got two great kids and uh, I have a wife that puts up with all of my drive and over commitment to work, which is fantastic. She's great. Uh, and, you know, on the side of those things, I run a financial <laughs> education planning and investment firm. Uh, and the more interesting story is how that comes about. Uh, long time ago, back in high school, my friends would have told you that uh, my future life would be something to do with investing or something to do with money. And I didn't know what that was going to be like, but uh, they, they knew that that's the direction I was going because I had a I had a deep interest in markets and economies when I was a kid because we didn't have anything and I wanted, and I saw that as an avenue to getting. And uh, so um, that's where it starts. And then I do a lot of research and I do a lot of study through high school uh, and I go to college for finance, but within a year of finance education in college, I was bored out of my mind. And so I started studying philosophy and philosophy was so just fun and engaging. And I loved it. I loved writing 20 page papers in college. I loved it in grad school. 
and I ended up going to grad school to study comparative religion. So there's still this finance thing in the back of my, in the back of my mind, but I started this comparative religion and I started getting deep into Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism specifically. And I started meditating and about two and a half years, maybe three years into my, into my um, master's program, I had, I had the intention of going on and getting a, getting a PhD and, and being an academic. I learned about, learned that about you last time and I was surprised, <laughs> that was cool. Um, but for me, it was a little different because I had, uh, uh, I had a buddy who was on the same path as myself and he knew Chinese and he knew uh, he could read Japanese and he could read Hindi and he could read Sanskrit and he could do Latin, German and French. He could read all the original languages and I was just like, there's no way I'm gonna compete with this guy. So I have to do something else. And besides, I want to practice more than I want to study anymore. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I had to find a job. Uh, I, was, uh, I had, a, had a degree in philosophy, and I had dropped out of a program in, in Buddhist studies. That, that's, that doesn't get you a job. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> There's no job for that. Uh, so, uh, and I had debt now and, and all that, you know, this, the, the usual story. And I looked around and I was like, you know what? I remember this investing thing that I really, really enjoyed. And I started a five-year, seven different Wall Street firms uh, career. And I learned over those five, six years that, you know, I love the work with clients. I love it. It's fantastic. It just drives me. It just gives me oomph. Uh, but I hate the industry <laughs> and, I, and just couldn't stand the industry. And then it took me another, I left and I started my own firm. That's what we do today for 20 Mm, yeah, 20 years now, we've uh, worked with about two, 300 families and on their personal finances and their investing. But about 10 years ago, uh, I had a client who said, you know, Jonathan, you have a different take on this. You should write a book. And so that's the source of the mindful money, the book. And that's really where I had to take my philosophy and bring it to bear in my industry. And by bringing the mindfulness into financial planning and into money, I think, I think it's, I think I codified the things I already thought and knew and did, but um, I was able to actually present that and, and start making it a clean part of our industry and what it is that I do every day. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Great. <laughs> it's uh, funny getting a little bit deeper into this and I can begin to see like the similarities of how our backgrounds and how our interests developed. Um, so that's really interesting. And I think it's great how, you know, you get such, there's such a, an interesting point when you join two fields together. Like, let's say you look at, you know, Buddhism and financial planning, which are not two things that you usually see sitting at the same dinner table. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, but it's just such a, like a fertile ground for new ideas to come and new perspectives. So that's, you know, one of the things that makes me really excited about this podcast. But if I return you the question, why start a podcast? We all have busy lives. You've written a book. You're, um, you know, helping families plan their finances. Why a podcast and why this podcast? Yeah, and it's, and you know, this was, you said this earlier, you, you kind of dragged me kicking and screaming into this program. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, it's, it started with the idea of, um, well, I was on your podcast and I thought, you know, I've been on a few podcasts and I thought, you know what, eventually I'm going to do a podcast. And my thought was it was going to be more granular, more about the basics of building wealth. You know, you got to save more, you got to invest intelligently, those kinds of things. And you had this idea of let's do a 
sociocultural analysis of wealth. You know, how do let's put wealth in the context of society and let's let's talk about that and let's let's interview people about that. And I was just like, wow, that's that's that is that sounds so much fun. Um, whereas <laughs> the other would be fun as well, and I feel like I'd have a big impact the other way, and I'll probably still do that. Um, but let's have some fun. Let's do this. And after we talked a few times. I just knew it'd be a great idea uh, and it'd be a great idea to do it with you. So I'm excited to work with you on this project. Um, and uh, it lined up. There we are. And what about, let's say, podcasting at this historical moment? Like, you know, we're both authors, we've both written books, and I think we've seen a little bit of, you know, what's happening in the, pub the publishing industry. And maybe if one can say the diminishing influence of print media, I don't know if we can say that. Um, is there something about this moment that makes you think podcasting is a good idea as opposed to, you know, trying to get on network news or trying to use social media as a way to get your ideas out? What, why, why a podcast specifically? It's a great, it's a great question. I think, I think podcasting is the only, or, or, or listening to podcasts, consuming podcasts is the only thing you can do while you do everything else. Like I, I can't read a book and drive. I can't read a book and exercise. I can't read a book and nor can I really engage uh, the media world, video, um, CNBC or whatever. And I don't think in those places you have the opportunity to go deep, uh, to take as deep a dive into specific topics. Whereas, you know, I mean, CNBC, we call it, you know, as a, as a financial advisor that's focused on long-term planning, we call that financial pornography. And there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that out there. It's this, how do we make this? It's, it's not about informing people. It's not about creating wisdom or creating better outcomes. It's about how do we highlight the most egregious and most awful and most horrid and make that the headline so we get more clicks and so that we get more eyes on us so that we make more money because we can advertise more. And that's, that is literally the background behind the entire, um, you know, click world. You know, yeah. The more clicks you get, the more, more money you make, period. Okay, how do I get more clicks? And you and I, we're gonna, we're gonna try to get an audience on this, but we're gonna do it with deep conversation about, about relevant issues that are difficult to talk about. And I think that's, there's value in that. And I told you this earlier, one of my fears is I'm gonna put my foot in my mouth a number of times. Um, <laughs> I'll do my absolute best to recognize when I, when I do it, um, but I'll do it. And, and I look forward to being called on it uh, by our guests or, or by you. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you make a really uh, great point. We didn't totally get to that last week, but I think the fact that a lot of the media environment that we exist in is either, it's, it's designed to keep your eyes on a specific screen in order to deliver your attention to advertisers. And that happens on network news. It happens on social media. I mean, for sure, certain podcasts, like there's now able to integrate advertising into different podcast platforms. That's a whole different topic. But I think in terms of, you know, the democratic media that's available there, and especially to have long form conversations, I think there's something special about podcasting at the moment. And, you know, I, I gave my two cents on that last week, but I think definitely the point about the fact that our attention is, is being sold to advertisers. And if the medium is free, if the media is free, it's because you're the one they're selling you. Yep. <laughs> you are the product. If it's free, you're the, you product. Are the product. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Um, and so if we uh, like push Wait, that can, a little bit further, can, yeah, go ahead. Can we promise it will never sell our listeners? Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay, good. 
Sounds like a good commitment to me. So when we talk about like some of the themes that you are looking forward to getting into, like obviously being able to explore certain ideas is a motivation behind doing this, this podcast. I know for me, it certainly was. Are there some hot button issues that you look forward to getting into or some specific people that you want to talk to as we go through? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's such a huge, wealth is such a huge topic. Culture is such a huge topic. I, I find the, the the Venn diagram of wealth and culture, you know, laying over top of each other. I think that's going to be really interesting that the, you know, where those two things meet. But for me personally, I struggle with the idea of wealth. So I, I, as I mentioned, I grew up with very little. My parents didn't have, my parents didn't have an income stream until I was like 15 years old. So um, I was really interested in the topic. And then as I, it's only been like four or five years since I've been, you know, what would be widely reviewed as successful. So the vast majority of my life, I've been struggling and trying to make it work and trying to come, you know, trying to reach goals and things like that. Um, and part of that was the trajectory of philosophy and disagreeing with my, you know, my betters in the industry and, and thinking they're doing it the wrong way. And, you know, so all of this stuff goes into the idea about, okay, you leave academia, you, you, you don't have a master's, you fail over and over and over again. Um, you love the client work, you hate the industry. Why? Why is, why is wealth so hard? What is wealth? <laughs> what is, what is success? What does it mean? And, you know, I, I think my, my, my sideline into philosophy and religious studies was really trying to discover what's the meaning mm-hmm. of life. And mm-hmm. for me, we're not going to answer that probably. <laughs> Maybe we will. That'd be cool. <laughs> Maybe one of our guests will answer it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. There we go. Um, but I, I really want to get to this idea of, about why we've financialized everything. No one is happy about it. We are, you know, levels of stress, levels of suicide, levels of anxiety, um, you know, the number of people that are taking pills to survive. I just wonder how much of this is because we have financialized everything. Mm-hmm. And if there is, you know, We've, we've determined that success is money. Mm-hmm. And I think that has killed us. Mm-hmm. I think we have to get back to what success really is. Uh, and money is important because it enables, it supports, but it's not the end. Uh, and the goal is to get to that place where we can all agree on what's the real end. Uh, and you and I will have conversations about that, I'm assuming at some point uh, again. Um, but yeah, until today, you know, where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm successful, I feel like I've, I've done really well. I feel like I've met a lot of those goals. Um, I don't feel wealthy. I think I fit. I'm part of the 1% in the United States. Um, I think I pay my fair share. Maybe I don't. I'm open to that conversation. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting, difficult topic. And I think we're going to go into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think, you know, when we're talking about, again, this is like one of these kind of macro uh, conversations that we don't get into all that often, but if you're looking at the system, the like the economic system that we run, commodification, which is kind of the, the the placing a monetary value on everything that we do, is a consequence of running this kind of financial system. And there have been tremendous benefits to it in terms of increased standard of living and you know all the indices of human well-being that we can look at, be it you know less um, child mortality, less world hunger, all these different things. I mean, that is a fallout of harnessing capitalism. 
But one of the darker facets of that is, as you say, the commodification of everything. And then we're left with like the human and emotional fallout of that. Yep. And, you know, in terms of what we're going to end up maybe exploring, like how, how do we function with that? Because on the one hand, like we're definitely profiting from the good things that that system has to offer us and not just the 1%, but even everyone else has profited because they're living at a standard that is way above what we were doing, you know, before the industrial revolution. But at the same time, we're all stuck with these sticky problems, which is that now everything has a dollar value and we're running after the dollar because that's the currency that we use to exchange for everything else. Yeah, it's, it's nice. We can all have iPhones. Everyone has an iPhone or it's equivalent from the Google atmosphere or Microsoft atmosphere, but some people don't have, you know, healthcare and that's the, mm -hmm. you know, there's a benefit and there's a, there's a problem all wrapped yeah. up. Yeah. But I mean, a hundred years ago, no one had healthcare. Right. So True. <laughs> yeah. Yay, now we have cell phones. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so if we uh, get into a bit more of the nitty gritty of this um, and we look at the two terms that make up the title of the podcast. So let's start with wealth. And how would you define wealth? It, it's a huge question, but like if you take your best stab at it, is it a question of material possessions? Is it a question of power and influence or is it somehow a measure of success or is it maybe some version of all three how would you how would you address the wealth question well i think the first the first thing you have to say is is we have a common understanding of wealth and, and so the common understanding of wealth is external conditions right it's um economics it's 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 levels of assets levels of income and uh you know that that leads to levels of influence and levels of maybe control or power uh, one of my mentors actually actually called it, he said, uh, true wealth, notice he puts a modifier on wealth. Mm -hmm. True wealth is uh, all the things money can't buy and death can't take away, like health, a close family, deep friendships, um, accountability, generosity, optimism, these kinds of things. And uh, I had this, I had a great conversation with um, somebody in the industry, what was his name? Doesn't matter. About five years ago. And he said he was, a, he was at a precipice when he was about the size of my company. And he said, um, Jonathan, when I was your size, and he is now 10X, you know, my size, I had a choice. I could commit to growing my business or I could commit to having uh, a really good family life. And at that moment, I could not have both. And he chose a big business and commitment to growth. And he, he told me at that moment, he said, I would not choose that way again. And so mm. it's really interesting. He got financial wealth. He lost true wealth. So, and we can all, I think, I think we can all uh, remember the classic example of an, 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 Ebene, an Ebenezer Scrooge. You can have all the money in the world uh, and be miserable. No friends, no family, no love. But that's, it's a caricature, but I think we all know one or two Ebenezer Scrooges. We all know somebody who makes you know, money and wealth and power their uh, end goal. Uh, and, and they're not happy. They're, they're miserable. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting dynamic. If, if we get the thing that is the common definition, we are not as happy as we could be as if we see, sought out what true wealth is. And that's... Now, if I went to Bezos and said, are you happy? He's going to say, yeah. And it's not, 
going to be because of his money though. He has way more money than he needs to be happy. Like he has, he has autonomy. He has freedom to, you know, engage in pursuits that he loves. He continues to engage in those pursuits. Those are the things that make him happy. Those are the things that drive his true wealth. He also has incredible financial resources, incredible power. Um, but I would, I would say those aren't the things that make him successful. They're the things we look at and say, he's successful because of all of these things. But those things actually provide him the things that actually make him feel happy and successful and have a meaningful life. So they're a boost, they're a condition, but he has the internal conditions to go along with the external conditions. And so I'm, I'm really interested in that, in that difference between external conditions, you know, wealth mm -hmm. and assets, and the internal conditions of you know, close family, health, and a commitment to those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that's kind of buried in there is that you know, human beings live in representations and in meanings of things. Okay. There is like, you know, the water bottle and then there is everything that we assign to that. And I think if you take something like, like wealth as a measure of success, I mean, the pure dictionary definition of wealth might be what is the dollar figure of what's in your bank account. Right. And that's one specific metric, right? And just the same thing as like, what do you weigh when you step on the scale in the morning? That's one specific metric. And then around that metric, there are all the other things that go along with it because wealth gives you access to certain privileges in society. It has a certain meaning. It's also a certain marker of success. So let's say that we're all engaged in a project of striving towards something. It's like the medal that some people win when they do a really good job at whatever their economic activity is. Yeah. And then we kind of have this, this thing that you alluded to, which is the good life. And I think you, you know, you're beginning to sort of say how you think those two things fit together. I think you've, in your previous answer, you gave us a good idea of those things that uh, will end up giving you a happiness dividend. So that's sort of one thing, but then how do you relate that to wealth and ambition and success? How do those two things, do you think those two things are compatible? Do you think they work together? What, how do you, what do you see the relationship between what's going on in the bank account and then what's happening on the other side with building the good life or the good life as a project. How do you, yeah. What's the relationship between those two? I, I like, I like the, um, uh, the, the, the question of relating the one to the other, actually, I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting way to ask the question. Uh, so many people think, you know, I want to be wealthy. I want to be happy uh, or, uh, and, and they don't think, they don't think, so I don't think you can set wealth or happiness as a target, as a goal. I think that a life in search of wealth ends up poor. Maybe it's a life in search of financial wealth ends up with real poverty, meaning no friends, no, right? Um, mm -hmm. And a life in search of happiness ends up just, you know, you just spinning circles, right? So there's this, um, when you ask the relation between the target wealth and happiness versus the good life. I think the good life is the thing where you can actually make choices to lead a good life. You can't make choices that lead to wealth or choices that lead to happiness. You can make choices that lead to a good life. And maybe once you've made those choices, you can also have wealth and you can also have happiness. I think mm -hmm. wealth and happiness are things that ensue from the good life. And I've, I've phrased that before in different ways, but ensue is mm -hmm. the right word. It, you know, mm -hmm. it's out of. Um, the, the challenge is it doesn't guarantee 
Yes. You know, living a good life doesn't guarantee wealth yes. or happiness. It provides the highest probability of reaching those two. Yeah. And in the instance of failure, if you fail to become wealthy and happy, you've still led a good life. So it yes. is its own reward. And you look at economic studies, you know, cross national studies, and you ask questions of happiness and contentment. I mean, and the classic is Bhutan versus the United States. The Bhutanese are so much happier and so much more contented in their lives than those in the United States. And they are on a relative basis, poor, 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 right? Um, so happiness is great, wealth is great, but their outcomes, we don't control outcomes. They're determined partially by our own efforts and actions and choices, but partially by luck and circumstance. And we can only control the inputs and try to have a good life and, and hope, continue on, persevere. Uh, and then if luck and, and circumstances shift and are supportive of it, we get to be wealthy and happy. Um, it, it's, that sounds like deterministic, but I, I do think our individual choices make a, make a big difference. I think, they're the, I think they're the biggest difference maker, but um, there's no guarantee. Mm -hmm. No, I, I really like, I love your perspective on this because I feel like responding to this question by saying that you, a certain lifestyle is a necessary but not sufficient condition. So that means that you can do everything right and still not have the precise outcome you were looking at, but it's the best chance you have, number one. And number two, one thing that will ensue from that is the fact that you will have lived a good life regardless of whether that, that ends up making you, you know, wealthy or, or happy, but that those things, it's the best chance. It's the best chance. Yeah. yeah I, so, I, I, I correlate it with, uh, with, you know, people, people confuse activity and investing like by trade and buy and sell and buy and sell with, with outcomes. And, it's not the activity that leads to the outcomes. Like it, it never is. But the entire universe of financial services, people point at that. Well, if you do this and this and this and this, you'll get that outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One doesn't lead to the other. There isn't, there isn't a direct line from here to there. There is a, a line that you know, determines with patience and discipline and you know, all the things that uh, athletes understand that, that you know, anyone that goes through hardship and comes out the other end understands. Um, it's it's those things it's character that gets you there and that's and that brings up all kinds of issues uh with how we're discussing wealth um in our in our society mm -hmm. i want to just before we move on to the next um question i want to just you know you, you mentioned bhutan as a, an example and talking about let's say relative levels of happiness in different societies and one point that i think needs to be brought up is that there's also something to do with the spread the income spread or the material wealth spread within a specific society. And there've been studies done that show that when there's kind of like a flat line, like let's say when everybody's poor and you can't envy your neighbor, um, it that correlates to a higher level of contentment, even if everybody has less. Whereas these great disparities between rich and poor um, really end up not being good for anybody. And yeah. ironically, like I, I think I read a study at one point of, um, uh, of done in Brazil, which is a very polarized society in terms of the giant gap between rich and poor and very little middle class. And that when it comes down to it, nobody's happy with that because the haves are dealing with like, a, you know, a lot of insecurity and uh, you know, a society where they feel like a lot of the population doesn't appreciate them. And then you have, you know, the base who is maybe 
feeling a lack when they look at, at other people. So it's, it, it doesn't only have to do with your material conditions, but it also has to do with like the variance in material conditions within a specific society. I think, I think that fits right in within that whole character thing. I think envy and, and those, those yeah. kinds of things are really, really important. There's also just, you know, and this is, this is something I try to teach my, my kids um, because again, I, I was raised with very little, they're being raised with everything. And so how do I, how do I teach them to not be jerks about it? And, mm -hmm. and I remember when my son was really young, I think he was like four or five and he saw, you know, a really nice car. He saw like a, you know, like one of the, he saw a car that looked like the cars, he, the little matchbox cars he played with. It was like a Ferrari or something. And he was like, Oh my God, dad, that's such a cool car. And I was like, uh, okay, we have to, <laughs> we have to be wary of, of that, not the envy, but the, Oh, I'm going to have that car someday like that. It's just, it, it can be gross. And in a five-year-old, that's fine. But you see all kinds of 40-year-olds are doing the same thing. And that's, yeah. that's problematic, I think. Yeah. And so I think this leads uh, really nicely into a conversation about social fabric. Mm. So I think we're at a moment in history where, um, you know, that income disparity is really growing. And I think it's been growing anyways in the last 20 years, especially maybe more in the US than in Canada, but like across the Western world in general, um, the middle class has been thinning out and there's like a real gulf that's developing between rich and poor. And I think the COVID moment, um, according to like a lot of the stuff that I've read is accentuating and precipitating that, like accelerating it in a way uh, that was you know already there, but it's, it's accelerating now. Yeah. So if we're talking about wealth in a moment where social cohesion is being threatened by these growing disparities how can we have a conversation that's socially constructive and not divisive do you think that's possible or yeah i don't so social can we have a conversation that's not socially divisive i don't know i i i'm i i i doubt it I think that I think the reality is that the character of every individual is unique, and we all are. And this is we're all attracted to things that make us happy, and we all repel things that make us sad, um, right? And so we're all fighting to improve our own thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of philosophy that gets that gets, you know, bandied about around this stuff. And it's <clears throat> can we have a can we have a conversation that's not divisive? If, if we can realize that my losing doesn't, doesn't, my mm -hmm. winning doesn't require your losing, mm -hmm. then maybe, but we're so far away from that. Um, so can we get there? I, I don't know the path to there. Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of folks that have to <clears throat> recognize that, you know, right now you speak to the moment of, of the COVID moment and we're having, you know, people talk about a, a, a swoosh recovery or a, or a check mark recovery or a, and I think what we have is we have a K recovery, right? We have, we have this, we have this moment in time where the economy is split. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas you, an enormous number of people globally, not just in the U S globally who had low paying jobs or had, you know, were hanging on by the bottom two rungs of the ladder um, don't have jobs anymore. They're just not there. And, and you know, there, and those businesses that were employing those people, are going under. And the reality is that's going to be, you know, 15% of the population of the U S probably larger and other less, less developed places. Um, and so there's going to be an enormous amount of poverty that is 
created and enhanced from this uh, uh, disease and from our response to the disease, which hasn't, hasn't always been the best response. So um, that's real. But, but before COVID, let's talk, about, let's talk about that gap or that uh, the hollowing out of the middle class before COVID. So I see, I read a lot of the actual numbers and the data on this. And yes, the middle class is getting smaller, but it's not at the expense. It's, it's actually more people are getting wealthier. It, one of the challenges in the conversation, okay. right? One of the challenges we have in the conversation is we're confusing anecdotes and statistics. Yes. So the reality is the statistics say, you know, unemployment is improving. The statistics say that our income levels are improving. The statistics say that, you know, the economy is getting better. And that is reality. Like the reason the market is up and the economy is still in the, in the hole is because the statistics say it should go up. But that, that covers over all kinds of specifics. That covers over statistics, hide details. And in the details, we have a, um, and even, you know, in the United States at least, uh, I think this is true in Canada as well, but even people that are poor are less poor on an absolute basis. They're way more poor on a relative basis. Their lives are better yeah. than they were or would have been 20 years ago. But they, when, they, when they look at people that are ahead of them, they are way ahead of them. And so the idea of, of uh, equalizing that, bringing yeah. people more in line, <clears throat> I think we do have to work on that. Um, I think it's really, really, really important. But it, it's also, it's also part of the, the mindset that goes into it. If we say the middle class is hollowed out and that's horrible, well, if, if the middle class is hollowing out because more people are getting more wealthy, mm -hmm. then that's not horrible, right? Mm -hmm. If we say that um, you know, the minimum wage is, is dragging and it's low and it's down, but you know, I, I actually saw something this morning that said, that actually looked at people that made between you, the, the number of jobs for people making more than $26 an hour is now higher than it was before COVID. The number of jobs okay. for, for people making between 15 and 26 is just lower. The number of jobs from people making 15 or less is still 30, 40% less than it was. Okay. Okay. But that's, is, is that a minimum wage problem? No, it's a, it's the, there's no jobs problem and, and businesses can't survive paying a whole bunch of people, you know, so my son actually has a job where he's making $25 an hour. He's 15 years old. Um, he's working at a restaurant because other people didn't want to go back to work at a restaurant. And people are being wicked generous with tips right now. He's 15. He doesn't need that. Um, right. But he's, he's out there doing it. Right. So this, this idea of, this idea of, of uh, the separation of the haves and have nots, mm -hmm. It's, it's just, it's fraught with, with, um, if you're at the top, you don't want anyone to take it away from you. If you're at the bottom, you think that everyone should take it away from those people and give it to you or give you a leg up or make it easier for you. If you're at the top, you go, I worked my ass off to get here. This was really, really, really hard. And so this conversation of, uh, of the only way I can get ahead is if I take down them. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they can get ahead is they take me down. That's the conversation that's killing us. It's, it's, it's the, it's the zero sum. Yeah. You know, 
conversation. And it's not zero sum. It's never been zero sum. And the, the, the quicker we realize it's not zero sum, the quicker we realize that, that we can all be better off. Um, we'll be better off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a very um, important point to make. And it's actually, I find that I end up having a lot of surface conversations with people when you realize that underlying those conversations is a set of zero sum thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of like the, this idea that, um, you know, the, the sort of knee jerk policies that target business owners and, and people who've, who've, who've accumulated some kind of material wealth. Like, yes, I think we all agree we need to have some kind of mechanism for redistributing to make sure that we don't end up with a two-tier society where there's like basically an aristocracy that gives these their wealth down the generations and prevents anyone else from, from getting in. But at the same time, it's true that if you start like in, in this zero-sum thing, then you're actually taking stuff away from people because one of the motors that drives innovation that drives people taking risks that drives invention is the fact that there are financial there are real world rewards for those processes and if you take the rewards out of the game or you um, somehow diminish the value of those rewards are you not at the same time just creating mediocrity by default you know it's i actually don't think it's that i don't think it's that clear because I, I totally agree with everything you said. Like I, there's rewards that causes a lot of people to work towards those rewards. But I read literally this morning, I read something about Elon Musk. Um, and you know, there was a time when, when both SpaceX and Tesla were you know, on the brink of failure. And those are both things that we want. We want Tesla because we want that technology and innovation. And we want SpaceX because we want to have that, you know, the potential for colonizing Mars or, or space exploration or, you know, all the things that SpaceX does. And there was a point where they were both going to die. They are both going to go under. And, you know, he's got a pretty good life. Elon Musk, he didn't have to do this. He invested like something like $100 million in, um, in Tesla at the time and like $10 million into SpaceX at the time to save them, to, you know, and the question is, the specific question here is, would Elon Musk have done that if there wasn't a potential for a billion dollar payoff? And it's a good question because Elon Musk is, is already wealthy. Um, he doesn't need a billion dollar payoff. And he is passionate about global warming. He is passionate mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. about the electric vehicle, about solar and about about getting this Mars just in case we destroy our planet. So there's somebody that may not require a financial reward to make that investment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He may actually be trying to save us. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not making a call either way, but I do think there, there are, there are uh, situations where you'll have people that'll do fantastic things, invest incredible sums without the expectation of payoff. But I think that's an anecdote. Going back to the statistics versus anecdotes, mm -hmm. incentives matter. And I think that I think we have a uh, we have an incentive structure that does reward people. Um, I don't know what the right amount of reward is. I don't know what the right amount of incentive is, because incentives, you know, if you if you've ever read uh, Freakonomics, um, incentives also go the other way. Incentives also hurt us. And so, how much how much wealth is necessary? Uh, how much incentive is necessary to drive innovation? Um, I think that just speaking about about my home culture here, I think that the last round of tax cuts were probably not necessary. I think we had fantastic innovation before that. 
And I think that probably we could even have fantastic innovation at even a little bit higher tax rate. Like I'm not, I'm not pushing it for you know lots and lots higher, but we have serious issues now and we need to have funding for, for the COVID response. We need to have funding for all the people that are not working. We need to have funding for all this. So getting into the granular thing, I, I wanna have incentives for people to invest and for people to be desired to be successful and for, and for people to be rewarded for that success. The question is, what is the right level of incentive? You know, and you don't have to, you don't have to read far uh, today to find, do you need a billion dollars? You know, billion, I, somebody recently said, I don't remember who it was, but maybe it was a politician, maybe it was somebody else said, there shouldn't be billionaires. Like billion, there doesn't need to be billionaires. Billionaires should all be eradicated. And I'm just like, you know, <laughs> I don't know what that, I don't know what they're promoting. I don't know what kind of eradication they're promoting, but it's, it's, you know, having more zeros is just, we're further along in the future. Eventually there's gonna be trillionaires. There, there will yeah. be, I don't know, we're, yeah. we're a ways away, but eventually yeah. there will be. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so I, it's a question of incentive, versus innovation, versus how do we take care of those people that suffer the most when things fall apart? Mm -hmm. And so if we bring this back, because I, I think we somehow now got up onto like a very broad societal level. And if we now bring it back to like our individual lives and what we do as like discrete actors in the lives that we have, um, I mean, how do you see like the, the pursuit of wealth? I mean, is it a goal? Is it a bank account? Is it a process? Is it a practice? What, you know? When you, <laughs> what do you think about the pursuit of wealth? So the, yeah. do we really, again, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Do we really, wealth can't be pursued. You, you know, again, go back to Elon Musk. You can take my example. Let's just use me. Rather than me talking about some vague thing that I don't, I don't know any internal drivings for it, using me. Wealth was always a driver for me, but it wasn't a driver for the sake of wealth. I, I wanted the things that my friends had and I couldn't have. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to be able to get on a plane and go somewhere. I didn't want to go camping. Like I, I love camping. I love my family. I, and and I, you know, my mom, if my mom listens to this, I don't want her to feel bad. Um, <laughs> but they did everything they could to give me a great life and a loving household. And they stayed married and all kinds of positives came out of that. Um, but I always wanted more. I always wanted. And, and that, you know, if you, if you're raised 15, 16 years of feeling like you can't have enough, like you can't, like that, that affects you. Yeah. And so it's, it's been a fascinating thing for me in my own discovery of, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. I have it. Now what, <laughs> what is it? What is it that enabled me to get it? What is it that brought me here? And I think the, mo the most important thing for me was the drive. It wasn't, it was very helpful that I was white. It was very helpful that I was male. It was very helpful that my parents were married. It was very helpful that I went to college. It was very helpful that I had a, had a public education, uh, uh, access to good public education. These things were all very helpful things, no question. But the thing that drives me still is the anxiety of not having, the anxiety of falling back, back to the crack again. Um, and that's, and I, I deal with this every day. Like I, I, it, it bothers me every single day. I worry about it every day. And that drive, you know, it's probably not healthy, probably not entirely healthy, but it's put me where I am. 
right? It's given me financial resources to provide for my family. Um, and it's given me, and so now I worry about how do we, how do we enable more people to drive after their own goals? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not wealth. Mm-hmm. I have, and it's not because of the wealth that I have these things. I think I have wealth now because of these things. Like I've maintained my health. I, I read every single day. I write every single day. So I'm constantly learning. I have fantastic relationships. I've got four really close friends. I mean, the kind of friends that will help you move, right? Really good friends. <laughs> um, <I'm, laughs> lift I don't lift help, lift. I don't help anybody move. Eh? <laughs> I've been a landlord for too long, like, friends, <laughs> but I will not help anybody move. <laughs> I got too many like appliances left in apartments and you don't even, anyways. <laughs> so you're but not I a very good friend. I you're get not... that as a metric of friendship, okay? <laughs> but I, I have all of these things that are like, I think the markers of real wealth, real happiness, real potential. And I think it's having those things and, and continuing to have those things and keeping those things and paying attention to those things has enabled me to stretch to wealth. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, uh, we're probably coming to the end of the the time that we have for this episode, but I think that that's a great place to kind of start ending it off is that the growth mindset and the fact that, look, I mean, we can go through our own personal stories, but I think if anybody checks in with themselves, there is this kind of a natural human pursuit of growth. And it can be in the service of excellence. It can be in the service of external markers, but the human being wants to grow like a leaf on a tree that wants to expand. And if you want to like harness the best or get the best out of yourself or get the best out of people, it's by providing yourself or providing them with an avenue for growth. And absolutely. Can I be a maple? I want to be a maple leaf. (laughs) Okay. Sure. You can be whatever kind of leaf you want. (laughs) I love love the metaphor. I just, I I wanted to play with it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyways, no, I, I think that, that, you know, when we talk like my opinion on, on how we can have a, like, let's say a constructive conversation around wealth or one that maybe begins to not be super divisive as you say, well, like pursuing anything human, pursuing human growth, no matter where you begin running your race from is something that will, it's going to make your life more satisfying. And it's ultimately going to raise everybody else up because that's also part of what it is if it's not a zero-sum game then it's a game where in some ways every time you push the package of human limitations you're making everybody else's life better i mean not necessarily by like you know if it's if it's in creating new weapons of mass destruction that's a different thing but like if you're working in pharmaceutical research or if you're working in like any other kind of economic activity that that creates something or invents something that's useful to other people then in some respects, you're making the pie bigger. You're not taking it out of someone else's mouth. So that's, that's really, that's the biggest fear is the narrative that stops people from doing that. Any narrative that tells people they can't do it, that, that, you know, they are forever stuck where they are because of whatever circumstance they have. Um, that, that narrative is, is, it's crushing, literally crushing, crushes individuals, crushes communities. So instilling the narrative and it, if I, if I have one thing that I can thank my parents for, it's they, they always told me you can do whatever you want in life. We ha- I mean, it was ridiculous for them to tell me that. I mean, it was silly. 
Like I, I've, I've eaten more bologna in my lifetime than any other food. Like it, that was like, <laughs> that, was our, that was our food, right? So it, there was no reason for them to say, Jonathan, you could be a senator. You could be, you could run a business. You could do that. There was no, nothing in our history that makes it think that that would be a possibility for me. But they did. They always said, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And that was, I think that's the thing that's missing in many, many lives. Mm -hmm. I agree. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Unless you have any concluding words for this episode, I think uh, we, we, uh, another great conversation. Another yeah, great conversation. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode with my co-host, Jonathan Dio. If there's something you want to think about going forward after listening to this, maybe we could refer back to what Jonathan calls the distinction between internal and external conditions of success. Wealth can be a metric in the form of a bank balance or medals or some other kind of external marker of success, but it can also be something more internal in terms of contentment and satisfaction. And maybe therein lies the antidote to what Jonathan likes to call the financialization of everything. If we're able to pull ourselves out of the fact that everything is a market and everything is a commodity and to really focus on the other things that make life meaningful, perhaps this is the beginning of mindful wealth. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.